Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. On the podcast this week, a review of the Windows updates for July, which have just been released this week. Azure Active Directory has been rebranded and a win for Microsoft in their attempt to acquire Activision, quickly followed by another setback. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course, as always, is brought to you by my awesome sponsors. And that includes Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Networks Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. BleepyComputer.com has reported that Microsoft has patched 132 flaws, including six actively exploited zero-day vulnerabilities and 37 remote code execution vulnerabilities with the July patches that were released this past Tuesday. For a total rundown of the vulnerabilities that have been patched this month, it includes 33 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities, 13 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 37 remote code execution vulnerabilities, as I just stated, 19 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 22 denial of service vulnerabilities, and 7 spoofing vulnerabilities. The vulnerabilities, including for the zero days, are present in various different Microsoft products that ranges throughout the entire portfolio, really, of their products, but it includes Office, which allows remote code execution using specially crafted Office documents, and not just Word documents or Excel sheets, if you're thinking the more common ones, but also some of the other types of documents by the looks of things too. Microsoft has also fixed an actively exploited privilege elevation vulnerability in Windows MS HTML that was exploited by opening a specially crafted file through email or malicious websites. They said the attacker would gain the rights of the user that is running the affected application and said that the flaw was discovered internally by Microsoft's Threat Intelligence Center in that instance. So I scripted this episode on Wednesday, the 12th of July. And at the time of this recording, just browsing social media and also the patch mailing group that I recommend everyone check out It seems like there's no news yet of issues or fallout related to this month's patches. But of course, as always, listen in next week because it takes a few days typically for these things to hit the forums and to kind of gain traction when something's not quite right. And as always, other vendors have also patched vulnerabilities this month, including the likes of Apple, Cisco, and once again, Moveit have patched another vulnerability too. Uh, But as always, Check out all the patches from the vendors that are supplying applications to you and your organization. And of course, patch early, patch often, and make sure that you're testing. I just mentioned that Apple was one of the vendors who released patches for this month too. 
And with this Patch Tuesday, Apple patched a WebKit vulnerability under active attack, but had to withdraw the patch quickly as users reported browsing issues for certain websites. While Apple did not share why some websites were prevented from rendering correctly after installing the iOS 16.51, iPad OS 16.51 and Mac OS 13.4.1 updates. This likely happened because the new Safari user agent containing a string prevented websites from detecting it as a valid version of Safari, causing it to display browser not supported error messages for users, according to a report by bleepingcomputer.com. At the time of this recording, the withdrawn patch I guess has been fixed and it is now available again for those operating systems which of course as i stated includes ios ipad os and mac os this week microsoft announced azure active directory enterprise identity service is being rebranded to microsoft entra id by the end of the year now i think most people when they refer to azure active directory you know everything it encompasses they just call it azure ad they don't really refer to it as azure active directory enterprise identity service so my first reaction was microsoft enter id is a bit wordy but i guess it does make sense depending on how in future they rebrand some of the other underlying components and services within the azure active directory family or umbrella going forward so i guess we'll have to wait and see what shakes out long-term with this rebranding, uh, but they said that the capabilities and licensing plans, sign-in URLs, and APIs will remain unchanged, and all existing deployments, configurations, and integrations will continue to work as before. The transition from Azure AD to Microsoft Enter ID will be finalized by the end of 2023 and requires no customer action. As part of the rebranding announcement, Microsoft also announced the launch of two new services, Entra Internet Access and Entra Private Access that are in public preview, and they're designed to provide secure access to corporate resources. Entra Internet Access is used to secure public-facing web services, allowing admins to restrict visitors through conditional access. Microsoft Entra Internet Access is an identity-centric secure web gateway that protects access to all internet, SaaS, and Microsoft 365 apps and resources. Entra Private Access is VPN-like service that allows remote access to internal and private corporate resources. On the rebranding, you know, a lot of people seem to be reacting negatively to it. And as usual, it's going to take some time to get used to the new naming. But I also wonder because, you know, if you've been following the podcast over the last few months, there are other services or portals within Azure that we're also getting this Entra renaming or rebranding. So I wonder if in future they're going to plan to maybe change subscriptions to include certain Entra products within those subscriptions. That's purely speculation on my part. I have no insider knowledge on that. That's just me having fun and speculating, which I can do when I have my own podcast. But I guess we'll just have to maybe read the tea leaves and keep tuned. Microsoft's DevBox that I covered on a previous episode of the podcast is now generally available. For those who did not hear that previous episode, Microsoft DevBox is a ready-to-code cloud-based workstation optimized for developer use cases and productivity. DevBox combines developer-optimized capabilities with the enterprise-ready management of Windows 365 and Microsoft Intune. 
They claim it expedites setup of dev PCs. And on a previous episode of the podcast, I showed one of the features where essentially it's able to quickly install in and load all the developer tools and back up and kind of remember that configuration for when new PCs need to be built out or PCs need to be just rebuilt. To accommodate different use cases, they provide a predictable monthly price for full-time dev box usage while keeping consumption-based pay-as-you-go pricing that charges up to a monthly price cap. It'll be interesting to see if this gains much traction in the developer community. Microsoft recently announced a public preview for Azure Virtual Network Encryption, and they say with Virtual Network Encryption, customers can enable encryption of traffic between virtual machines and virtual machine scale sets within the same virtual network and between regionally and globally peered virtual networks. And this new feature enhances the existing encryption in transit capabilities in Azure. Azure Virtual Network Encryption is available in the regions East US 2 EUAP, Central US EUAP, West Central US, East US, East US 2, West US, and West US 2. So definitely pretty restricted in terms of regions it's available in for preview right now. But if you do have a use case and you're in those regions, you can sign up to obtain access to the public preview now. And I'll share a link with this announcement, which also includes a link to sign up with this episode. And you'll find that at fivebytespodcast.com with this episode, which is 290. The Windows 11 Insider Preview Build version 25905 has arrived to the Canary Channel. And with this release comes the Rust in the Windows kernel, which was a huge announcement that I covered on a previous episode of the podcast. I believe that was announced originally at Build. I think it was anyway. Um, But essentially, Rust offers advantages in reliability and security over traditional programs written in C and C++. So Microsoft have been kind of gradually tackling some of that, I wouldn't say legacy code, but just code in those languages and replacing it uh, with code in Rust. And this preview shipped with an early implementation of critical kernel features in safe Rust, specifically win32kbase-rs.sys contains a new implementation of GDI region. While this is a small trial, Microsoft said they'll continue to increase the usage of Rust in the kernel and say stay tuned. Now they did have a qualifier note here and they said they're beginning to roll this out so the experience isn't available to all insiders in the Canary channel just yet as they plan to monitor feedback and see how it lands before pushing it out to everyone. I also saw that Ned Pyle from Microsoft stated that this preview build also brings SMB signing being required by default by the operating system, which I saw Swift on security on Twitter was I think happy about this as it brings security hardening as a default setting within the operating system, which is a good thing, which I believe I was reading something not this week, but last week around some security settings within the Azure firewall, essentially being in the most expensive premium tier and some in the InfoSec community pushing Microsoft to make that available in all tiers. So yeah, definitely it's a positive that the more secure setting is becoming the default and hopefully Microsoft continue to take the approach of having important security settings freely available to all customers. 
no upsell in terms of subscription costs and just baked into the products by default, which I know would make uh, Patrick Coble <laughs> a happy boy. Remember, he covered a topic comparing different vendors and their products and how they rate in terms of security settings that are delivered out of, out of the box by default. So happy days, small changes, but hopefully an indication of more changes to come. The new version of Firefox version 115 has introduced a new backend feature to only allow some extensions monitored by Mozilla to run on specific websites for various reasons, including security concerns. Mozilla stated, quote, this feature allows us to prevent attacks by malicious actors targeting specific domains when we have reason to believe there may be malicious add-ons we have not yet discovered, end quote. The Hacker News reports some disappointment with the implementation in the user interface and state that while this feature can be disabled today, it is not very configurable, if that's a word, outside of just enabling and disabling it. But extra configuration options are reported to be coming to version 116. So I don't know how people will feel about this feature. It obviously gives Mozilla a lot of control, but it's at least adding some security, right? If Mozilla has, gets information that there are certain domains that are being used for attacks, then they'll be able to react and hopefully secure users from those attacks. VMware Horizon version 8.2.3.0.6 has been released and includes some new enhancements for the Horizon console, which includes a new role called Horizon Cloud Service that provides a limited set of privileges to administrators to activate subscription licenses and monitor Horizon 8 components from the cloud control plane via the Edge Gateway service. Uh, you can also now configure global agent restriction settings to prevent users from connecting to certain Windows agent versions and also provide an appropriate warning message to users about this. Uh, also for the virtual desktops and applications, support for hardware accelerated AV1 encoding has been extended NVIDIA GPUs. And for customers who are using persistent disks with dedicated linked clones in Horizon 7.x, the persistent disk feature is now available with dedicated instant clones. Persistent disks are used to preserve user profiles when the instant clones are refreshed. And they say you can refer to their migration guidance, KB93091, on how you can move your persistent disks from your Horizon 7.x environment to Horizon 8. The Horizon Agent also now brings support for Windows 11 as a guest OS when running on VMware Cloud on AWS. For this and more, check out the release notes for this version, and I'll share a link with this episode. Steven Gallagher from Citrix recently shared on his LinkedIn profile that starting with Citrix Workspace app version 2305.1 for Windows, Citrix are replacing the MSIX app in the Microsoft Store with the Win32 app and said that going forward, the app on the Citrix downloads page and the Microsoft Store are the same Win32 version. And with this enhancement, the feature parity across both apps is maintained. It is important to note that users with the existing MSIX version of the Citrix Workspace app for Windows must migrate to the Win32 version to receive the latest features. And Steven, in his post, shared a table 
comparing the features that are available in the Win32 version versus what's not available when you're using the MSIX version. Uh, so, you know, if you've been following the podcast for a while, you may recall that at one point the Microsoft Power Toys was available as an MSIX and then they ended up kind of circumventing that. I'm not sure if that's the right term I want to use, but we'll go with that by releasing a traditional Win32 package of the Power Toys. So this is kind of another example of an MSIX package version of an application being out there and then being scrapped and replaced with the Win32 version. And as I covered on the previous episode of the podcast before, Microsoft have opened up their store to allow support for Win32 applications via some integrations with uh, their Windows Package Manager or WinGet. So to me, this casts some further doubt on MSIX as a package format in the future. I really hope they don't completely abandon it because MSIX has potential as long as Microsoft's able to commit to it going forward and perhaps bridging some of the feature gaps and compatibility issues that are currently a factor when considering MSIX. As expected, the FTC has now approved Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, with ruling judge Judge Corley stating, quote, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision has been described as the largest in tech history. It deserves scrutiny. That scrutiny has paid off. Microsoft has committed in writing, in public, and in court to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation for 10 years on parity with Xbox. It made an agreement with Nintendo to bring Call of Duty to Switch, and it entered several agreements to, for the first time, bring Activision's content to several cloud gaming services. This court's responsibility in this case is narrow. It is to decide if, notwithstanding these current circumstances, the merger should be halted, perhaps even terminated, pending resolution of the FTC administrative action. For the reasons explained, the court finds the FTC has not shown a likelihood it will prevail on its claim. This particular vertical merger in this specific industry may substantially lessen competition. To the contrary, the record evidence points to more consumer access to Call of Duty and other Activision content. The motion for a preliminary injunction is therefore denied. End quote. Now, not long after this ruling was made by Judge Corley, there was an official appeal against this ruling. So this one's going to continue to drag on. Now, I've covered this story, and I know it's not necessarily enterprise IT related, but I feel like given Microsoft's position within our enterprise, this could be indicative of how future acquisitions within our industry may play out as well when it concerns a big player like Microsoft. So it seems like it's on ice again pending this appeal. But unsurprisingly, in my opinion, at least, and as I've covered and stated on previous steps of the podcast, this judge has ruled in favor of Microsoft in allowing the acquisition, which given the context of the case and gaming, it makes sense. Honestly, I think if there were other acquisitions and other areas that Microsoft is dominant in that were challenged instead, I think they'd have a harder go of it. But in this case, I feel personally getting these types of compromises by Microsoft should be enough to allow the acquisition to go through. But that's just my opinion, and I'm no legal eagle. CRN.com and the Financial Times reported that ARM are hoping to attract a consortium 
which could include Nvidia and Intel. You may recall that Nvidia launched an acquisition bid, but this failed as it was smacked back by regulators. But the feeling is this consortium approach with multiple players involved may be key to enable investment without it getting blocked by regulators. But all of this, as stated in the reports, was via anonymous sources. I'm covering it as it was cited by multiple media outlets. However, the sources are anonymous, so take it with a pinch of salt, but it does sound viable given ARM's desire for investment and for an acquisition and this potentially being a different avenue that they can explore in order to achieve that goal. Mary Branscombe on Twitter has suggested that those using Evernote may need to consider their options as there were posts on Hacker News' form alleging that recent changes have occurred in the organization after the acquisition that includes the Evernote team leaving the company. So obviously such a drastic change in the development and the team around the product uh, could be cause for concern and may drive users to look for an alternative if this is indeed true. Metrics from StackCounter recently suggests that Linux has reached over 3% of the market share for desktop operating systems. The data is very much open to interpretation as Ars Technica, for example, suggests some of the data starts to skew downwards for Windows after the suspension of sales by Microsoft in Russia. Also, when looking only at the US, Linux actually slightly lost market share compared with previous years, but overall, the data suggests a gradual increase in global market share for Linux on the desktop. So for those who have been shouting about the year of Linux on desktops, it's not quite there yet, but a gradual increase may excite you. And talking about some recent metrics, IDC have reported that PC sales fell 13.4% in the second quarter of this year, which is the sixth consecutive quarter of declines. The firm cites macroeconomic headwinds, overall weak demand, and a shift in IT budgets away from device purchases for the decline. The decline this quarter was actually less than IDC expected, so I guess that's a positive even though it's a decline all the same. And from an individual manufacturer standpoint, Lenovo sold 14.2 million units, which was down 18.4%, and they have 23% of the total market share. HP sold 13.4 million units, which is down 0.8%, and they have 21.8% of the market share. Dell sold 10.3 million units, which was down 22%, and they have 16.8% market share. Apple sold 5.3 million units, which was actually up 10.3%, and they have 8.6% of the market share. And Acer sold 4 million units, which was down 19.2%, which is 6.4% of the market share. So obviously interesting that Apple saw an increase while the others that I mentioned all saw a decrease. So read into that what you will. I will say, just personally speaking, that Apple have a more exciting product than competitors on the market right now due to the fact that they've launched their own M1 and M2 chips, which seem to have pretty stellar performance. It's been an interesting couple of weeks relating to AppV, at least in my opinion, because I do still care about it. 
I was listening to Tim Mangan and Bogdan talking on a webinar about AppV and the transition to MSIX, during which Tim talked about having a customer who's still using AppV4.x. And I recently had someone reach out to me about my AppV uh, setup series for setting up the AppV full infrastructure, who is only just now starting a migration from AppV4.6 to AppV5.1 full infrastructure. And I saw that the awesome Andreas Nick had a blog post covering the end of life announcement for AppV, where he suggested in conversations with uh, one of the AppV engineers of Microsoft that AppV's end of life may not be 2026 necessarily. And I know that's something that I think I mentioned in a blog post previously, and I've heard Tim Mangan uh, discuss as well, that theoretically, AppV may be around longer than 2026, at least for the AppV client and possibly the AppV sequencer as the AppV client was put into the operating system. So the support lifecycle is going to be possibly different than the MDOP version of AppV, which would include the AppV 5.1 full infrastructure. Now, Microsoft, for their part, at least in my opinion, have been putting out some mixed signals. You know, as recently as just a few weeks ago, I heard a discussion amongst Microsoft employees on one of their podcasts about AbV being end of life in 2026. Microsoft have also in the past kind of used blanket statements around the end of life of AbV as though AbV in its entirety is going to be end of life in 2026. And I think on the webinar that I watched with Bogdan and Tim, Tim's advice was to approach things as though AbV is going to be end of life in 2026, regardless of if the support for the client and the sequencer gets extended. And related to the earlier bit of this podcast where I was talking about MSIX, it may not be a bad idea to for Microsoft to potentially keep AbV around longer if customers are struggling to adopt MSIX. But right now, it seems like there's this kind of limbo period going on, which is not good. 2026 is not a million years away, and it could take some time for customers to do due diligence and figure out their path forward and make that happen. So if that includes you, as Tim alluded to, and as I would suggest, now is the time to start planning what you're going to do with those AppV packages. In a complete departure story for this week's episode, a judge in Canada has asserted that an emoji can amount to a contractual agreement and has ordered a farmer to pay more than $82,000 for not delivering product to a grain buyer after responding to a text message with a simple thumbs up image. The court heard there was a deal struck for flax grains back in March 2021 for the product, but when November came around, the flax was not delivered and prices for the crop had increased. The defendant stated they sent the thumbs up emoji to indicate that they had received the message, not that they had reviewed the contract and accepted, but the judge was not buying it and ruled against the defendant in this case, suggesting that that thumbs up was indeed an agreement to complete the purchase. So in a previous episode of the podcast, I reported some suggesting that Gen Z found a thumbs up emoji to be rude and obnoxious. And now in an older generation, a thumbs up can warrant agreeing to a deal. So be careful with how you use the thumbs up emojis, I guess. In some great community news, the EUC Masters Retreat is now becoming EUC Unplugged. 
So a big week for rebranding. They said that it's the same great event with a new name. And the date has been announced for the EUC Unplugged event in 2024, and it will be taking place from April 19th to April 21st. And it's going to take place once again in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I've been to every single EUC Masters Retreat, which is now the EUC Unplugged event. And it's a really awesome event. And I suggest everyone listening to this try to register for the next event. And I hope to see you there if I'm lucky enough to get to go again. Finally, to wrap up the news for this week, congratulations to all new and renewed Microsoft MVPs. I believe the biggest renewal date is July 1st. That's when most people find out if they've been renewed. So congratulations to all those who got the great news and to those who uh, didn't get renewed or didn't get accepted this time to the program. Best of luck next time. And please do continue to contribute to this awesome community. And that's it for this episode's news. Let's get on to some scripts, tricks, and tips. First up this week, Scott Duffy asked, did you know that you can create a dynamic group of Azure Virtual Desktop devices using the system labels property in Azure Active Directory? So if you're managing Azure Virtual Desktop devices, this could be of use to you. Thomas Markison shared a new PowerShell script to set up and configure non-destructive pin reset, saying with this option, the user's Windows Hello for business container and keys are preserved, but the user's pin that they use to authorize key usage is changed. And for non-destructive pin reset, you must deploy the Microsoft's pin reset service and configure your client's policy to enable the pin recovery feature that is included now in this script that he's shared. The awesome Gregor Sutti is now doing a live stream series of discussions with many of the Azure rock stars in the community. He's got a pretty full and packed schedule of discussions and videos already prepped within his YouTube channel, and I'll share a link to that with this episode. But because YouTube now uses these cool kind of at channels for people, you could also just find it by going to at Gregor Sutti on YouTube if you'd like. I saw smsagent.blog shared a blog post and script or scripts, plural, by Trevor Jones on Intune remediations for, for CVE-2023-24932, which I believe is a CVE and issue that I shared similar scripts for back when the original issue was announced. And this is for those Windows Boot Manager revocations. So if that's something you still have yet to address, there are some scripts that you can deploy with proactive remediations in Intune if you follow this blog post in these scripts. And finally, to tie a bow on some of the topics covered already in this episode, like I talked about AbV, talked a little bit about MSIX, I did work on a blog post that was published this week on Numescent.com uh, talking about application containers and how they pertain to the future of application management on Windows desktops. Uh, I, I actually recorded this part of the podcast earlier and it went way too long. I blathered on for about three minutes. So I'm not going to do that. If you're interested in application management for Windows desktops and you've tried a lot of the options out there and found they don't really help to modernize your application management and deal with a lot of the application challenges on Windows, I suggest you check out this blog post, which when it was promoted on Twitter, got a lot of really great engagement. And it seemed like there's possibly some misconceptions around application containers. 
that I think this blog post addresses. Not all application containers are created equal is what I'd say. So maybe read this blog post if you're into application management uh, for Windows applications. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.